Good morning, Mafra friends. Uh, good to be back with you, per medium of the video. We're continuing our series on Gathered Together, the book by Carl Dienick, exploring uh, God's great plan for the church. And the idea is that we uh, we take one of the passages that he deals with because he, he talks about a lot of scripture passages. And I've, uh, I've just chosen one today and some Old Testament readings that go with it. Uh, but the passage we're looking at today is the very famous Luke 10, 25 to 37, often called the Good Samaritan. I don't know if that's a great title or not, but it's what we've come to know it as. But before we go any further, let's pray, then we'll read the word and then we'll get into it. Uh, Now, I've got a prayer that I prayed with you last week, so perhaps you might like to pray it again. Keep your eyes open and look at this. Um, This is a prayer that comes straight out of Ephesians 2, Paul's prayer for the church. So it's a Holy Spirit-inspired prayer. It's a good one to pray for our church and as we come again today to uh, to seek God's uh, blessing on our, on our church and to grow in our understanding of it. So let's pray this together. We come before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We pray that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, Amen. So Luke chapter 10 is our reading and we're starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he, that's Jesus, said to the lawyer, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, this is the lawyer again, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So this is one of a number of uh, recorded encounters that Jesus has with experts in the law, people who knew the law of Moses, what we'd call uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the other uh, five books of the law. And as in a couple of other encounters that we read in the Gospels, this was a man who was trying to test or trip Jesus up. Lawyers have a bit of a reputation 
at times for being somewhat devious. Uh, my brother's a lawyer. Um, he's not one of them. He, he's a very honest, straight shooting sort of fellow, as I hope you might expect. Uh, but he told me this joke, which is a, a lawyer joke. Evan, there's a lot of lawyer jokes around. There's whole websites devoted to them. But I learnt this one not from the internet, but from my brother. And so the uh, the joke goes that a, a man who needed legal assistance uh, made an appointment to go and see a lawyer. He'd never done this before, so he was somewhat nervous about going in to see a lawyer. And he was particularly nervous because he knew lawyers had a reputation for charging quite a lot of money. And so as he sat down at the lawyer's desk with the lawyer on the other side of it, he said, look, uh, before we go any further, I just need to ask you um, what your fee's likely to be, how much do you charge? And the lawyer drew a breath and just said, well, it'll be $1,000 for three questions. So the man who needed the legal assistance sat there and he sighed and he said, well, that's a bit steep, isn't it? And the lawyer said, yes, it is. What's your third question? Lawyers have a reputation for being tricky and looking for loopholes. There's uh, another joke that goes, uh, what's the difference between a bad lawyer and a good lawyer? The answer is a bad lawyer can make a case last for months, a good lawyer can make it last for years. Lawyers have the reputation of being able to find loopholes and exploit those loopholes for the uh, for the sake of um, picking the eyes out of a case and getting the deal the way they want it to go. Um, this particular lawyer that's come to see Jesus uh, has, has come to, to trip him up with a question. He's come to test him. But the, the context of this part of Luke's story is that in chapter 9, verse 51, uh, we read that Jesus is moving the sphere of his operations from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, Luke tells the story of Jesus uh, in a geographical kind of a way. So in the early part of Luke's gospel up to chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus is operating in the region of Galilee that you can see on the map. But at chapter 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem when the time came, when the days draw near for him to be taken up. In other words, when he was going to go to the cross and then through the resurrection to ascend to heaven, when his ministry was going to reach its fulfilment, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face. He set his face like Ezekiel the prophet. There was nothing that was going to stop him doing what had to be done in Jerusalem. And so he set his face to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. And as it turns out, he had to travel through Samaria, but we won't go into that now. Uh, So Jesus has been tested by lawyers at different points, and here's one of those tests. Um, Now, what's this got to do with the doctrine of the church that we've been thinking about, uh, reading the book by Carl Dienick, Gathered Together, and we've already seen uh, some episodes uh, from the book of Ephesians that tell us about what God's vision for the church is. Uh, we've learned already that church is the gathering of people. It's not a building. Church is the gathering. Uh, it's an activity of the people of God. But it's a gathering of people who would not normally be associated with each other. With each other. So last week we spoke about how Jews and Gentiles who were natural enemies of each other are now bound together by both being saved through Jesus, they're bound together as a church. Um, the church is supposed to be an organism, an organisation where different races find unity in the Lord Jesus. Not just to tolerate each other, but to love each other. Male and female come together. It's not a, an exclusive club for men or for women alone. It's men and women together. It's for young and old. So the old in the church can benefit from the uh, 
the, the dynamism of the young. The young from can benefit from the wisdom of the old, but both are to come together. Churches are meant to be diverse. It's uh, an organism where wealthy people and poor people should find a home. Uh, it, there should be no socioeconomic barriers to it. Now, it's a big mistake for anyone to think that the church should be comprised of people who are just like them and no one else. So if we look to a church to be the kind of place that we'll go to find people just like us, we're looking at the wrong thing. God's called enemies to be his friends. We read that in Romans chapter 5, and he calls us to do likewise because in Christ, even the worst of enemies can be reconciled. And so he brings unlikely people together. Uh, He's transforming them into this brand new version of humanity, which is called the church, the gathering of God's people. And so this famous story, what we might call the Good Samaritan, is uh, is a story that highlights just some of those issues. So Jesus has begun his ministry. He's uh, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's been teaching what it means that he is the Christ, the anointed of God, the, the king that God had promised through the prophets to send that all good Jews were waiting for. Well, a king needs a kingdom. And so Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God and the disciples haven't quite got it and nor have quite a few others as well. And so this lawyer, with his test of Jesus through these questions, gives Jesus an opportunity to teach the lawyer, of course, but the disciples and then us about what the kingdom of that he's creating looks like and, and the values that should be found in every church, including ours. And so the lawyer in verses 25 to 28, comes up with a test. And really, he's testing Jesus to see, does Jesus fully understand the scriptures? And so we read there at verse 25, behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, when it says that he stood up, that is a sign, first of all, that he's paying him respect. So the lawyer, this is what you do to a respected teacher. He addresses him as teacher. The Hebrew word is rabbi. Um, and, and so the, the lawyer shows Jesus some respect. Uh, but it seems that it's all by way of trying to trap and confound Jesus. Because to put him to the test is not something you would do to someone you respect. The very word test that we see here is the same word that's used in Luke chapter 4 for what the devil did when Jesus went out into the wilderness. He tested him or he tempted him. He's trying him out. He's wanting to see what he's made of. Effectively, what's happening here is this expert in the law is trying to see whether Jesus is orthodox, whether he is a a, a proper, truthful teacher of the law, whether he's someone who can be trusted. And it seems from the demeanour of the lawyer trying to set him up, it seems that he assumes that he's probably not. So this is not a friendly test. This is not a friendly uh, questioning. This is a contest. And so the question um, that that he has uh, is in verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this lawyer is an Israelite. He's living under the old covenant. Uh, The people of God, under the terms of the old covenant, covenant, demonstrated their faith by their obedience to the law of Moses. Now, the way that he poses the question, he puts it in the past tense, which means he's asking, uh, in effect, what must I have done to inherit eternal life? He's thinking of one act that would get him across the line. That's what he's looking for. So in verse 26, Jesus answers, as he very often does, with a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
So in verse 27, the lawyer gives a textbook answer, a very good answer. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. So that's an outstanding answer because he's combining two parts of the Pentateuch. He's combining Deuteronomy 6 with Leviticus 19. He's putting them both together. Not just one commandment, but two. Now, I wonder if he's aware that Jesus himself has put those two commandments together. And so uh, Jesus um, is recorded as having taught that the whole law hung on those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with every part of your being and love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus says, if you love God, then you'll love your neighbour. If you don't love your neighbour, by definition, you don't love God. He says, this, this is... The whole of the law and the prophets it hangs on those those two things. They're the, the foundation of everything that follows. So I wonder if the lawyer knew that Jesus had taught that. And what he's, he's trying to see, is Jesus orthodox and is he consistent with what he himself teaches? That might be what's going on here. So in verse 28, Jesus, operating out of the context of the Old Testament law, fires back at the, uh, the lawyer uh, something that's also found in the, in Deuteronomy. And so Jesus says, well, do this and you'll live. He wants to know, what must I have done? He's thinking of one deed that might get him across the line. What must I have done to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, how do you read it? He says, love God, love your neighbour. Jesus says, good job. He says, do this and you will live. Now, that seems to be an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 32 where Moses tells the people that the commandments that he's reciting to them are not just empty words for them, they are their life. Their national life will depend on it. Well, that's been extended now. The lawyer understands that fidelity to God's law um, will determine his eternal life as well. So Jesus asks him the question. The, the man gives him a good answer. Jesus says, do it. But in verse 29, he asks another question. So verse 29, he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Now that word justify, uh, another way of thinking about that is he's wanting to declare himself to be righteous. He's wanting to say, I've done enough to inherit eternal life already. He wants to vindicate himself. So first he's trying to to test or even to trap Jesus and now it looks like he's trying to try Jesus' righteousness. Uh, he's wanting to see how Jesus stands up in that respect. He's looking for the fine print. Who is my neighbour? He knows that he has to love his neighbour. He's even quoted that from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But it looks here as though he's trying to test what are the limits. It looks as though he's asking well, I can't love everyone, so just exactly who is my neighbour so I'll know who I don't have to love. I want to love my neighbour, but I don't want to love people I don't have to love. So who do I have to love, he's saying. Now, there's some support for that from Leviticus 19 because we had that read to us before, but uh, Leviticus 19 from verse 17 to 18 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbour. So neighbour and brother are parallel there lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. So that's the commandment in Leviticus 19, but it does seem to be linked to expressions of love that are shown to fellow Jews. So when 
he says, who is my neighbour? Probably he's thinking, does Jesus agree with me that this only applies to loving fellow Jews? Because that leaves out rather a lot of other people. He's a true lawyer. He's looking for a loophole. He's seeking to minimise the scope and the force of the command that, uh, that he knows is from God, which he himself has acknowledged. He wants to know, in effect, who is not my neighbour. Well, Jesus tells the story that we've come to know as the Good Samaritan, and this is his test of the lawyer. Does the lawyer know the scripture properly? We're about to find out. So Jesus replied in verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho um, Jerusalem was 750 metres above sea level. Jericho is 250, minus 258. I think it's almost the lowest point on planet Earth that, that's not below sea level, that's not under the water itself. So it's 258. It's a, it's a, it's a, a steep descent from Jerusalem down to Jericho, almost continuous over about 30 kilometres. Um, and it's arid, hilly country. Uh, It would have been a narrow road back in those days. It was full of caves. Uh, It was uh, windy. It was remote. It was not a place that that, uh, people would go unless they had business to attend to. There wouldn't have been any shops along the way, no service stations or anything like that. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was frequented by robbers because there were plenty of places to hide, plenty of places where they could make themselves scarce. So it's not surprising that Jesus pitches a story where there's an incident of violence and, and, of, uh, and of robbery, uh, people would have known that the road to Jericho was good for that very sort of thing. Now, there's some important details here. Now, I'm relying very heavily on some reading I did from a man called Kenneth Bailey, uh, who's written some wonderful books on interpreting the parables, and he's picked up details that I probably wouldn't, but it's my joy to be able to pass them on to you. Now, he points out that it's very important to note that this man was stripped and he was beaten and he was left near dead, um, half dead. Now, that probably means that he was unconscious and wouldn't have been able to speak to anybody that came by. Uh, to, To be stripped means that he has no clothing left on him, pretty obviously. Now, when Jesus told this story, the original audience would have assumed that he was a Jewish person. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is in Judea. Uh, So they would have assumed that this person is a Jewish person. But without clothing and without being able to speak, no one would have been able to identify him because Jews were identified by their distinctive attire and by their accent. So no one really knows who this man is. He's just half, he's near dead and he's naked, lying beside the road and he's clearly been beaten up. He's just a human being. So verse 31, this is a well-known story, but let's pay careful attention to it. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw this naked, half-dead stranger, he passed him by on the other side. Now the priests were amongst the social elite of Jerusalem or of Israel itself. Uh, No member of the elite would have travelled 30 kilometres by foot. So it's almost certain in the world that Jesus is telling the story from that this man is riding, almost certain. It's not in the text, but it's almost certain. It's very likely that to see a man who can't respond and to see him from a distance, he's near dead. The priest might well have thought, well, perhaps he is dead. 
And so for him to go and to get down and administer help to this person would have made him ritually unclean because contact with a dead body made you unclean, which would have meant that he's unfit for service in the temple. And that's what priests were doing. He's probably on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, having worked at the temple, but to get back home and to suffer the indignity of being made unclean, apart from anything else, it would have been very costly for him to buy the animal that he would have needed to sacrifice to render himself ritually clean again. So to see a man lying naked and half dead was actually very inconvenient for this man of status and prestige. He's put tradition and the requirements, as he understands it, in the law above compassion. But, verse 32, so likewise, in other words, just the same way, a Levite, when he came to the place, so he might have got a bit closer, and he probably was on foot, saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, whether he knew that the priest had done that, whether he was walking somewhat close to the priest, it's hard to say. But what we've got here is two negative responses. Now, the Old Testament law said, let everything be established by two or three witnesses. We've got two witnesses who have done the wrong thing. They haven't administered compassion. Everybody would be thinking, well, come on, we've got to help this fellow, but not those two. And they were at the elite level of Jewish society. So the Levite possibly thought, well, if the priest didn't help him, I don't have to either. He might also have been thinking, if I help him and the priest didn't, the priest might think I'm trying to show him up. I'm trying to show off by doing this. So he might have excused himself on that basis. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And there's a message there. We can all of us very, very easily rationalise sin. We can all tempt ourselves, fool ourselves into thinking this sin I'm about to commit is actually okay, even though I know it's not. We rationalise it in our hearts and I think that's what's happening with both those men. Well, it's typical in parables that you get three examples. Uh, verse 33 but now everybody listening to the story probably expects the third character in the story to be a Jew of lesser rank perhaps a, a peasant and the peasant is going to show up the elite levels of Jewish society the people who are supposedly closest to God by virtue of being religious but no it's not a poor Jew but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, compassion is one of the words by which God is identified in the Old Testament. And so this one, this Samaritan, the least likely, the unlikely person, actually has a character, has a, a reaction to the person which is characteristic of the God they say they serve. Now, this is a huge shock to, the, to anybody listening. Uh, Samaritans were the enemy. Jews and Samaritans were brought up from the cradle to hate each other. They regarded each other as very low specimens of, of humanity. They were enemies from birth. Uh, some years ago, I taught um, a class and uh, we were talking about the current affairs of the day. This is back in the 90s when there was the Balkans war on and I had a girl who was from a Croatian background and she said that that night before watching the news, they'd been talking about the Balkans war and her father said, if I saw a Serb, I'd kill him. And the way she said it was, it was so vehement, I thought well, there's a possibility that could be true. Um, it seems that Croats and Serbs have hated each other for generations and there's almost nothing that could bring them together. Uh, if you remember the troubles in Northern Ireland between so-called Catholics and so-called Protestants, uh, each side was brought up to hate each other from the cradle. 
That's how it was with Jews and Samaritans. I've seen various attempts to act this out at Sunday school anniversaries and things like that, uh, beach missions, and you know they try to find an unlikely person, you know, the, the hippie and the skinhead. It just doesn't quite cut it. Uh, the bikie and the Sunday school teacher, it doesn't quite do it. These people are sworn enemies. These people are... Samaritans would, would, would have been expected to do the very worst they could by this person, but he doesn't. He behaves with compassion towards him. So verse 34 tells us what he did do. He went to him. He wasn't scared of becoming unclean and he bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, the oil and the wine's for cleansing, but there are some echoes there of important Old Testament things because priests in sacrifices poured oil and wine on the sacrifice before it was offered on the altar. And so he's doing like a sacrificial act to this half-dead, naked man. But Jesus' description of what the, uh, the Samaritan does actually harks back to some words that we read in the prophet Hosea. So Hosea is prophesying that one day God is going to bring back his exiled people out of exile back to the land. And so in Hosea chapter 6, we read, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up so that we may live before him. So that's what the Samaritan's done. He's taken a person who's been torn and he's bound him up. He's attempted to heal him. He's tried to revive him. He's behaved towards him as God promises to behave towards his people when he rescues them from exile. But later in Hosea chapter 6 at verse 6, Yahweh the Lord tells his people, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, God wants sincere from the heart love more than he does ritual. The priest and the Levite represent a ritualistic approach to God, but one that ignores the practical reality of a fellow human being that needs their attention and they walk by. So they're callous. The compassion of God is expressed by the hated Samaritan. Now, when we read there that he put him on his own animal, uh, there's a suggestion there that that's the one that he's riding. It may be that he had another animal carrying the goods that he might have been taking somewhere to sell. Um, which makes him potentially a target for whatever brigands were around that um, robbed the, the poor man who he's ministering to. But then he takes him on his own animal and for him to be put on his own animal meant that the Samaritan would have led him, which means that he adopted the posture of a slave because only a slave walked while someone else rode. But he put him on his, his beast and he took him to an inn. Now, inns weren't luxury accommodation back in those days and the inn was almost certainly not on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, so he would have had to take him some considerable distance. Remember, he's a Samaritan in Judea. He's in foreign territory. But he doesn't leave him at the inn. He he actually stays with him at the inn. So he risks the, the put-downs and the scorn of people that recognise he's a Samaritan and don't like him for it. And so verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii. A denarii is, one of them is, the, is a, a day's wage. That so was a fairly considerable expense that he was incurring here, two days wages. Uh, and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
So it's not enough that he's just taken him and, and put him in, in some place where he can be cared for. He says, I'm going to come back and make sure that the job's done properly and make sure that I pay for it all. He wasn't obligated to pay a cent or a denarii. He wasn't obligated to pay anything, but that's what he took upon himself to do. So he's really undoing the dreadful deeds of the robbers. They robbed him and beat him up. He's affected some healing. They have taken all he had, but he pays a debt that is not his to pay at all. And he leaves him in proper care. So he is the, the proper neighbour in this, in, in this story. We've got two who should have known better who do nothing. And really, they take the side of the robbers. The robbers have beaten him up, but these others do nothing to improve his lot. And by neglect, they leave him as there as good as dead to die. It's the Samaritan who shows the whole lot of them up. So Jesus concludes in verse 36. He asks the question to the lawyer, having told the story. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour? The lawyer has been asking, who is my neighbour? It seems with the intention of limiting the scope of being a neighbour to those that he finds it convenient to serve. He wants to know, in effect, who's not my neighbour. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour, says Jesus, to the man who fell among the robbers? That's another way of saying who loved that man as he himself, as he loved himself, because Jesus has said that's that's what real love is. Um, Jesus says in the great commandment, uh, as you wish that others would do to you, do so for them. That's what he says in Luke chapter 6. So pretty clearly, um, we know the answer and so did the lawyer. He says in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And so Jesus closes the deal out and he says, you go and do likewise. Now, when Jesus says you go and do likewise, he's using two present tense verbs. And the force of a present tense verb is this is something to be done and done again and again and again without end. So keep going and keep doing likewise. Keep going and finding unlikely people. Keep going and finding enemies that you can be kind and compassionate to and just keep behaving like a neighbour. In other words, don't ask yourself, who is my neighbour? Or who is not my neighbour? Go out and be a neighbour, even to people that you don't like. So the lawyer wanted to know, in effect, what good deed must I have done to receive eternal life? Jesus says the road to eternal life is one of constant going and doing, even for people that you don't particularly like. What Jesus is saying is there's no limit to the call of the neighbour on it, on his people's lives. Now, Jesus is saying something quite radical here. He, he wants, he's embraced a lifestyle of complete obedience to God where he seeks God's glory above all else. And that's what he says has to be the characteristic of all who will follow him. He's teaching not just the lawyer, but his disciples and us about what the kingdom of God looks like and what it requires. Now, we've said before that lawyers seem to like looking for loopholes, playing with words, finding, finding the fine print and escape clauses. The lawyer looked like he was looking for that. Uh, but Jesus says, if you live under my rule, you won't go looking for escape clauses. You won't lo- go looking for the fine print. You will with your heart and soul and mind and strength love God and everyone else that God puts in your path. 
So to love the Lord wholeheartedly and love others ourselves, that's how God loves us. It leaves no room for the destructive characteristics that we see surrounding us around the world, all the problems that the world's in today. We're called to love as God has loved us. The the kingdom of God requires complete, unreserved God-centeredness. And the way we give expression to that love in the first instance is in church. Uh, through gathering together to hear God's word, to worship together and to love each other, not just on Sundays but throughout the week and whenever we have opportunities, even to people that we may not necessarily feel a natural bond of connection to. Now 1 John chapter 4 makes this very, very plain. John would have heard this story, he would have understood the implications of it and in writing to the people that he wrote to in his first letter he, he makes it quite explicit. 1 John chapter 4 19 to 20, he says, we love because he first loved us. He goes on and says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So it's our natural preferences to associate with like-minded people, people that we find ourselves attracted to, people who have overlapping interests, people that we respect and admire. And we might think, well, yeah, I'm prepared to love them. They can be my neighbours. But church has to be much more than that. I may have told you before, but if I haven't, I'll tell you again. If you have heard it before, then listen in. Uh, I was doing some recording in a recording studio some years ago in Melbourne, and I saw a small poster there advertising uh, it said metal church. And so this was a church which was specially for people who were into heavy metal. Um, I don't know what they would have said if I'd turned up, but or you. Uh, but if you're into heavy metal, apparently you didn't quite fit into mainstream churches. So this is a church for heavy metal people. Well, is that how it should be? Should I set up a bluegrass church or perhaps a church for Melbourne football club supporters? Is that church? No, because the basis of the fellowship is something other than Jesus. And so that's setting up an idol. Church is meant to be the gathering of people that might once have been enemies who have now been brought near and reconciled through the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is offering a a radical thing. He's he's saying, I can bring together people that in, in the world will be enemies. And this is a thing of wonder, even to the heavenly authorities. We've read that in Ephesians chapter three. So Jesus is the one who loves like the Samaritan. The Samaritan is a picture of Jesus. He extended the love to his compassion to a natural enemy. It was costly, it was sacrificial, and it was complete. Nothing was left lacking. The love that the Samaritan showed is a reflection of the love that Jesus showed us. If Jesus has shown us that kind of love, we need to imitate that as his followers, as his disciples, in the way that we extend love in the first instance to our fellow church members, but beyond that, to all that we meet, because everyone is our neighbour. We're not looking for loopholes here. Church is to be a demonstration of the the, the radical transforming power of the gospel as as people are reconciled through the Lord Jesus. Church is where we we practice this ongoing commitment, not one time, but ongoing commitment, going and doing to love our neighbour, being Samaritan-like neighbours ourselves. So when you come to church, probably a good question to ask yourself is, how can I love my neighbour today? 
tomorrow, you could be asking, how can I love my neighbour today and the next day and again and again? Look for ways to keep on going and doing. Now, we may never get around to asking the question, who is my neighbour? We might have that matter settled for us now. But we might say things that sort of echo or reflect that kind of attitude. We might look at the church and say, well, there's not enough people of my age there. We'd never say this out loud, I don't suppose, but we might sometimes be tempted to think there's not enough people who earn as much as I do there. Uh, We might look for all sorts of reasons. We might say, well, I don't like the music or maybe the coffee's pretty bad or the building's pretty crummy. I want somewhere a little bit more upscale. If we're judging the church by any of those things, then we've fallen into the, uh, into the trap that Jesus illustrates here. This passage helps us to understand that our obligation as forgiven and reconciled sinners, reconciled to God through the saving work of Jesus, means that we must demonstrate that same intent to be reconciled with all those around us, our neighbours. Uh, what's impossible for humans is possible to, to, uh, to God because He's a God rich in mercy and and free in grace. So this story began when the lawyer impudently tried to test Jesus. It ended up being a test for the lawyer and it's a test for us. We shouldn't be looking for limitations on this command to love our neighbour because as we love our neighbour, we're actually proving the reality of our love for God. So church is the visible expression and the outworking of that love of God who is rich in mercy. And we're compelled by that love that he's shown in Christ on the cross to go and act likewise. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know we love because you first loved us. So we ask that you would please keep us from ever insulting you by saying, We love God, but secretly hate our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Keep us from that hypocrisy. Keep us from that lying. Help us to love our church family in word and in deed. Help us to love all who are our neighbours, who we have seen, and by doing so demonstrate our love for you, whom we have not seen. And we ask that you would help us to do this for the sake of the glory of Christ in the church and because he loved us and gave himself for us. So we pray in his name. Amen.